Well, we're continuing uh, our series uh, in this Easter season in, this, in the Gospel of John. We're kind of tracking through the whole Gospel, just kind of a big, long chunk of a series. Uh, and we're, we're remembering uh, throughout the series that the claims of Christianity at their most basic level are historic in nature not just philosophical or religious or something. So if you're a regular, you might be getting sick of this, but I keep saying it because I know it was really important to me uh, in coming to faith in Jesus. Christians actually believe that uh, Christmas happened and Easter happened. So we fundamentally believe that we live in a world where a resurrection has happened. And, and that's, that's really the, the unique question that Easter places before us. Did it happen? And the Bible is quite clear. If it didn't, we should bag this whole thing and go do something else. But if it did, it's the most important event in history. Not just people who consider themselves Christians now, but for everyone everywhere. Because it would mean that God has done something in the world to show us who he is, what he's like, and what he's about in this world. It also would mean that our default instinct as human beings with regard to our approach to spiritual things is wrong. You know what I mean? The the thinking and believing that there's more and the the trying to get in touch with our spiritual side or or to pursue a, a religious life all bent on the same goal, the same assumption that we humans need to reach up to God with the goal of finding our way back to God. But if Jesus was raised it proves we don't need to do that. In fact, it proves that entire effort would be fruitless. Because if Jesus was raised, that means that God is reaching down to us. That we don't have to do all that work. That God has done something definitive, something unique in this world. And that this really is the reason Christianity claims to be unique. And today's scripture highlights that unique claim. We're looking at John chapter 14, where Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. And and thus the only way back to God. So we'll unpack that in a moment. But let's listen to the scripture. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? 
The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jim. Well, kind of like uh, last week in the text we were looking at, there's a little kind of intro line that sets the stage for the things that Jesus said. So I, I want us to think about that. It, it kind of uh, helps us get in touch with what was going on in the room when Jesus spoke these words. So uh, that, that's all explained back in chapter, uh, chapter 13. Jesus and his disciples were at the evening meal, so they're having dinner together. And it was at that meal that Jesus uh, washed his disciples' feet. He took off his outer garment, wrapped the towel around him, and, and washed their feet. And that was a mind-blowing experience for them, right? They had to grapple with that. That was the subject of the message last week. But, but right after that, Jesus went on to tell them, those 12, that one of them would betray Jesus, would become a traitor. Uh, look what he said. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. And John asked Jesus who it would be. Jesus indicated it was Judas, and not long after that, Judas left that dinner party and went off on his own. And, and soon after Judas left, Jesus did a little more teaching, and Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And that's the verse that appears right before our reading of today started. So, imagine the vibe in the room. You come to dinner with your rabbi. This stunning, mind-blowing reversal of power is, is witnessed at dinner as the rabbi becomes the ultimate servant, washes the feet of his disciples. This is the Jesus way, right? At, uh, completely opposed to the world's way. That was mind-blowing enough, but then Jesus tells them that one of their closest friends, one of the 12, a true insider, one around the table with them right there, would become a traitor. Like, what, what do we do with that? And then they learned that Peter, Peter, strong, confident, solid, the rock, little rock, rocky, would deny Jesus himself, their leader. You know, Peter, one of the three in whom Jesus invested most deeply with James and John, and by the way, if you read the Gospel of John, that news caused Peter to go silent. He does not speak again in the Gospel until we hear his words, I don't know the man. I mean, the disciples, now 11 in number, sitting around that table, 
They were stunned, I mean crushed at a complete loss. Troubled to the depth of their beings. And it was to this very, very troubled group that Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now the context changes the way you hear that, doesn't it? I mean, talk about emotional whiplash. Got the whole wash the feet thing, then somebody's going to betray, and then Peter's going to deny, and, and now you tell us not to be troubled? I mean, come on, Jesus, how can you tell us not to be troubled after you, you just delivered such troubling news? And Jesus explains. Believe also in me. Trust me too. Meaning you trust God. Trust me too, Jesus says. Take your eyes off yourselves and your circumstances and look to me. God is real. God is trustworthy. I am real. I am trustworthy. And by the way, he says later, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father the king of the universe. The implied message, the answer to a troubled heart or difficult circumstance is renewed trust in Jesus or a transfer of trust to Jesus. That's what biblical faith is, trust. And, and Jesus goes on to explain why we can trust him. We kind of get into the meat of this. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, the simple reading of this leads us to, to think about heaven when we die. At least it leads me in that direction. It's a passage often used at funerals, and rightly so. It certainly means that, but I think it means much more than just that. There's a really important background here as well. When a Palestinian man and woman got married, there was a whole process that led up to the wedding. The families would talk in advance. There would be a bride price paid and a betrothal ceremony scheduled. And at the betrothal ceremony, the father of the young man, the potential groom-to-be, would pour a chalice of wine, much like our communion chalice when we have it down here, and he would set it before the young couple and the young man would take the chalice and he would drink of it and then hold it to the young woman and say, by offering this cup, I vow that I am willing to give my life for you. And this was the time where the potential bride-to-be actually had something to say in this whole arrangement. She could choose not to drink. And that would mean you know, no to the will you marry me question in our cultural context. Uh, but if she did take the cup and drink, she was saying, and I am willing to give my life for you. And the couple would be betrothed. So betrothal isn't a thing in our days. Think engagement on steroids. Uh, the marriage had not been consummated, but in every other way, it was just like being married. To break the betrothal required a certificate of divorce. If one in the couple were unfaithful to the other, it would be much more than sexual immorality. It would be adultery. Uh, think Mary and Joseph. 
right? Remember what the angel said? Uh, Don't be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary home to be your wife, so they're in the betrothal period. What's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So at that point in the seminary, the young man is like, yeah. She said yes, she drank, she said yes. Then he would say to her, I am going back to my father's house to prepare a place for you. When I'm finished, I will come back and take you to be with me and to be my wife, to where I am. And literally, the young man would go back and take up a construction project. So back in that day, the, the, the family home was an, an oikia, or kind of a complex uh, structure that held multiple nuclear families. The, the oikos was the gathering of blood and non-blood relationships. So it was a kind of a, a small community that all lived in this kind of compound, and there, there would be a common area and gates that opened to the the outside, and they could close those gates and have some public space for their little community. So this young man would go back, and he literally built another room onto that compound. I go to prepare a place for you. And that husband to be worked hard. He wanted everything to be perfect for his wife to be, and he was eager for their wedding, for their new life together. He prepared that place in love for the person he loved, and when it was ready, he went back to get his fiance. Then they were married, there was a wedding, and they lived together in the new place. So you gotta, you gotta feel what's going on in the room. Foot washing, betrayal, denial. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And now suddenly Jesus is talking about the excitement of looking forward to a wedding day during the period of betrothal. I mean, put yourself in the room. You're thinking, what is going on here? What, what is this about? See, Jesus was using the cultural imagery of what happened between a betrothal and the wedding day to tell his disciples and us something very important. Many things I'll focus on too today. First, our ultimate destination is heaven. Right, The, the place where everyone who trusts Christ has faith and and. Um, remember, there are no qualifiers on, this, on faith. This isn't, your, your faith doesn't need to reach a certain caliber. Mustard seed faith here, mustard seed trust, but it's a trusting of Jesus for what he's done for us. It's what the faith we're talking about. That kind of faith is the anchor, the assurance that we have in understanding heaven as our ultimate destination. According to one commentator, heaven in John's gospel is the real presence of Jesus Christ himself with his people. The Bible says some other things, but that's, that's pretty clear, right? Heaven is where we'll be with Jesus. The Bible tells us that we can have assurance of eternal life. The apostle John wrote some other things in the Bible too, first, second, and third John and the book of Revelation. And in first John, like in his gospel, He tells us why he wrote the letter. Here's what he said. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not wonder, not hope, but know. Know that you have eternal life. So if you trust Jesus, if you submitted your life and heart to him, if you've asked him for his help and received the forgiveness he offers, then you are betrothed, so to speak. You, you took the cup and you drank. Huh. 
Can you think of any other things that we do as a body where we take a cup and drink? I hope you know that about communion. Every time you take the cup and drink, you're saying back to Jesus, and I will give my life for you. Bride to bridegroom. See, in this imagery, the time between betrothal and the wedding is the period of our lifetime. The period between saying yes to Jesus and the the wedding day, which is that moment when either you die or Jesus comes back and be assured one of those things will happen first. And either way, we can be assured, yes, that Jesus has gone before us to prepare a place for us, but also that the Lord loves us and is eager for that day because he loves us. Right? Maybe, maybe you find yourself in the autumn months of life where death to this life by all human appearances seems closer rather than farther away. Step one, make sure you're keeping the main thing the main thing. Make sure you actually know Christ and have received the forgiveness that he offers. And I know that I'm happy to talk about that anytime as is Pastor Sam and Pastor Brian. Step two, hold the words of Jesus close. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You are dearly loved. Like a bridegroom toward his bride-to-be, Jesus is looking forward to that life with you. When it's time, he will have everything ready. And he will come back to take you to be with him where he is. That's what he said he'd do, and I take him at his word. Maybe you're much younger. Maybe you're here as a middle school student or high school student. You think, man, all this talk about death, it's just uh, a major downer, like really scary. Why do we have to talk about this? Uh, Over the centuries, Uh, one of the primary understandings of what we do as a church is we help prepare all of us for death. That's not the only thing. Like the the gospel isn't about just getting your ticket punched to heaven, but, but, but it certainly is knowing that you can have assurance about your own death to this life. That that you do not need to live in fear. There's a foundation available. We don't think about death according to our culture's view of things. I think it was Malcolm, was it Malcolm Muggridge who said that our, our society's dirty little secret is no longer sex. It's death. We like to talk and act and behave, go through our days as if that will never happen. Keep stuffing it down. Stuff, yep, yeah, okay, we'll think about that. Oh, stuff it down, stuff it down. We don't, we don't have to think that way. See, death for the one who trusts Jesus is simply going to be with Jesus. Not because I so, say so, because that is what he said. Right? And, that, and that's just the first thing Jesus was telling his disciples and us. Our ultimate destination is heaven. Second, we can live in the presence of Jesus now. When a person trusts Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in that person. The Holy Spirit is God and is present with the Christ follower now and always. Now, way back in the 1600s, there was a, a lay Carmelite a brother in a monastery named Brother Lawrence. He wrote this quite well-known book, The Practice of the Presence of God. 
It was all about his effort to live with greater and greater awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit living within him and to live moment by moment in the Lord's presence with a greater degree of awareness and, and intentionality. We can live in the presence of Jesus right now. Our faith isn't just a head thing, right? And by the way, this is why willful sin is so destructive. Remember King David in, in uh, uh, I guess it was Psalm 19, right? Uh, uh, Please do not let willful sin rule over me. Because he was acknowledging that willful sin can kind of come in and take over. And the problem with us as Christians is when the Holy Spirit is living within us, God's presence is right here. When we do something we know is wrong, we're taking that presence and stuffing it down. It's like saying to God who's living within, talk to the hand, Johnny's not home right now. Right? So we're the ones walking away. God's not doing anything wrong. So the place of which Jesus spoke is the place of his presence with him forever in heaven and with him by the Holy Spirit now, moment by moment. Sounds like a place we want to be. At least it sounds like a place I want to be. So how do we get there? What's the way? It's the question Thomas asked. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, this is probably uh, uh, not only the most memorable and comprehensive I am statement of Jesus, but the most offensive to the world. See, in saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus claimed to be the answer to every spiritual quest. I mean, think about this. East Asian religions seek the the Tao, the way of wisdom, right? Tao comes from a Chinese word that means the way, the path. Eastern religions seek the way, the best way to live. Western European philosophy seeks the truth, veritas in Latin, in Roman mythology, Veritas was the goddess of truth. These days, the word Veritas, Veritas is, is uh, in the mottos of many colleges and universities. Thanks to Frederick Dale Bruner, who pointed that out in his commentary. And often, education is billed as a search for truth. So Western philosophy at least purports to seek the truth. Uh, and all people are on the hunt for life. Just, just look around you. We're throwing all sorts of resources, all sorts of time at pursuing things, paths, opportunities that we hope will bring us greater life. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you've had a similar experience to me, you know that you've pursued some paths that seem to promise more life at the front end but turned out to be dead ends. And here's Jesus saying, I am the way, the the way of wisdom, the best way to live in this world. I am the truth, meaning the truth for which you seek uh, about your life and about about this world in which you live. I am the life, you know, the real kind of life for, for which you long. It's only available in me. And this this way and truth and life are not 
religious or philosophical concepts, depersonalized ideas, they are a person, or more rightly put, a person is them. Right? Jesus himself is the way, the best way of life, the, the, the way of wisdom in this world. He is the truth about what's going on in your life and mine and in this world and this world in which we live. And, and he is the life, a better way to live. There's no easy button in life. Thank you, Staples, for the thought, but it's not true. But following Jesus is a better way to live. And that's the goal for all of us, following Jesus, becoming more like him, right? This is why we say that the Christian life is about becoming more like Christ. I mean, the, the, the fancy word is sanctification, but it's this lifelong process of growing to be more like Jesus. And I'm not just saying like a little bit here and there. That, yes, that's how we experience growth. But as followers of Christ, our, our lives are on a trajectory and uh, we should be growing in, in living in the presence of Jesus every day and following Jesus in such a way that our life begins to look as if Jesus was living our life in our place. That's what this means, a Jesus-shaped life. I've got really good news for you. The model for church is not church. The model for church is Jesus. I've got really good news for you. The model for being a Christian is not other Christians. Of course, there are people who've gone before us. Don't take me too far, right? But the model for Christians is Jesus. Jesus. I mean, we're, we're pursuing a Jesus-shaped life, lifestyle, following Jesus and laying down our lives to help others follow Jesus too, just like he did. Right, not only did Jesus claim to be the answer to every spiritual quest, he claimed to be the only answer. And this is, this is the, the uh, you know, equal opportunity offender thing. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. This, this kind of exclusive claim has caused all sorts of friction. Right, because it just grates against world religions, uh, human philosophies, all of that. But I submit to you, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense and is in complete alignment with the historical claims of the Christian faith. We say that we believe this stuff because something happened on the timeline of history, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now those of you who've been around have, have heard me use this illustration from N.T. Wright uh, from his book about Easter, but it's so helpful to me in illustrating the exclusive claims of Christianity and, and why that claim makes sense. I imagine all of humanity gathered together in a fog. And uh, all of us are wondering about spiritual things, the meaning of life. How can we ever find our way back to God? We can't see a thing. The fog's too thick, but we can hear people making claims. Occasionally we hear a voice. I see some light over here. I think this is the way. Walk, walk this way. And then another voice. No, no, that's not the way. The, w the way is over here. It's, it's this direction. Hey, this is the truth. I found it. I found the truth. It's over here. And, and thinking people are left feeling bewildered. Aren't we wondering how anyone 
can claim to see anything amid this thick fog because as we look around, we don't see any more light in one direction than in any other direction. So you throw, throw your arms up and, and wonder what to do. All the voices seem to be making exclu exclusive claims. Every one of them seems to make an exclusive claim. But imagine, imagine that someone came to us from the other side of the fog and said, God sent me to help you, to save you, because he loves you, and I do too. That would be something entirely different. That's the unique claim. And along with the Bible and all of Christianity, I submit to you that it is either true or not. See, Christianity will not allow itself to be placed on the buffet of world religions as if it's just as acceptable as any other choice a person might make in choosing their religion. The claim is different than that. It's all or nothing. It's everything or not worth any of our time at all. The only way to be reconciled to God, to enter the life you've always wanted, is to say yes to Jesus as much as you understand of God in Christ right now. Begging his help, receiving his forgiveness, being filled with his spirit, because this way is not a human way, it's God's way, and thus the only way. So throughout the series, we've been holding in mind what the Apostle John wrote as to the purpose of his gospel. He wrote this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He wrote so that we might respond. And the response, our response to Christ, involves a transfer of trust. So if you have never tasted that, I want to stand with the sisters and brothers of this congregation who have and with other Christians around the world to say that this is real. God loves you. God wants you back. God is trustworthy. And you can turn. And our initial turn to Jesus always starts with a humble asking. There's no other way to begin. Because it's a coming to the end of our rope kind of thing. Like, I know I can't do it. God, help. We have to acknowledge our need for help and we can pray something like this. God, I think you're real and I need help. Please forgive me and help me trust Christ, and please pour out your Holy Spirit on me to help me. This is the first step, and probably a step we need to take every morning, right? Come back to Jesus. So come home. Come home, no matter where you've been. If you've been wandering in a distant land, turn back toward home, and the Father will come running toward you. Jesus told a story about that. God loves you. 
God wants you. God did all of this for you. God left nothing on the table, did everything that he can to make the way back to him clear and open. Ours is simply to say yes and thank you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, please. God, you are good. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your spirit. Help us, God, wherever we are, help us. We want the way. We want the truth. We want the life that you came to show us. And we ask you to help. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.